I'm so glad to be here this morning. Uh, on behalf of Jane and Sandra and myself, we are excited to be here. Um, this has been 20 years since Life Keys was launched from here, and like John said, there's hundreds of thousands of copies. I've had a chance to do it here and in Canada. My co-authors, Jane and Sandra, have done it all over the world. Actually, it's been translated, just a little update, into, uh, into Korean. It's been translated into Finnish. And I think Indonesian is the third language, and so it's actually had a, a worldwide uh, uh, impact so far. We've had a great time with that, and it's just good to be here on the 20th anniversary today. And, and, uh, but it's also the 20th anniversary of something else. Um, about 20 years ago, uh, I preached this same sermon here at CPC. <laughs> now, I was over 35 then. <laughs> which means I'm a little west of 50, if you will. Actually, John was encouraging to me, because on the internet this week, it said that the 60s are actually the new midlife. But, yeah, I'm with you. But I don't know what you and I are going to look like in our 120s, Johns. I just want to say that in passing, right? Actually, the reason I bring that up is this, and that is this question has changed a lot in 20 years. We've gone through the largest communications revolution in the history of the world. And what that means now is that I can get online and be in 12 countries instantaneously. I'm exposed all the time, every day, to worldviews, major religions, philosophies, all kinds of things around me a click of a mouse away. Many of us have friends in Peru, in China, right? The first global generations in the history of the world are alive today. And with that perspective, the question here, there are many ways to God, right? Is is harder today than it was then because it's all over the place in terms of our bombardment. So, Uh, We need to grapple with this question today. I think a lot of people are actually much closer to what we just heard sung about in the Indigo Girls song, right? So that's a couple stanzas. I'm trying to tell you something about my life. Maybe give me insight between black and white. The best thing you've ever done for me is to help me take life less seriously. It's only life after all. Well, darkness has a hunger that's that's insatiable, and lightness has a call that's hard to hear. I wrap my fear around me like a blanket. I've sailed my ship of safety till I sank it. I'm crawling on your shore. I went to the doctor. I went to the mountains. I looked to the children. I drank from the fountains. I read the Bible. I did the workout. There's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line. The less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. So many people today, that's exactly where they are. And this question isn't just hard for them, it's hard for Christians and non-Christians alike. How do we tackle this reality? And how do we even begin to say anything in the wake of that? But the first thing I want to say is, I'm so glad we're still asking hard questions here. Um, This is not a simple question. I'm not going to give you a simple answer. But we're going to try to make inroads to it. 
because it's that important, in my belief, to all of us today. Well, the first thing I want to say about this question is this. God wants everyone in heaven. It's really important to say that up front. God wants everyone. In in 2 Peter, it says, the reason I'm waiting around to come back is because I don't want anyone to miss heaven. So the first thing I want to say is something really important to me, and that's this. If you've ever in your life been told by Christians or otherwise, you've been judged. You've been told you're not in the tribe. You've been voted off the island. Worse, somehow that judgment has has made you seem less. I just want to tell you that's not God. That is not God. And on behalf of the church, I just want to apologize to you. Because I can't tell you how many people I know that are outside the church today because of that misuse of the Word of God. So the first thing I want to say is God wants everyone to be in heaven. The second thing I want to say is this is you don't need to unfriend anybody. You don't. God wants us to love all the world. And many of us are connected in our social networks and all kinds of different ways to people everywhere. And I think one of the great products of this revolution is the sense of global for everyone today. In fact, as you're acting globally, you may have discovered that a lot of ideas are in common across the faiths, across the philosophies, across the worldviews. There's a lot of commonality, and and the reality is theologians, Christian theologians, have always called that general revelation, or another term in Presbyterianism is common grace. It's the reality that the Holy Spirit has revealed God all over the world, parts of God, everywhere, to everyone. And actually, those common grounds are spirit-driven. They are good things. In fact, more than that, the apostles, as it's modeled in Acts 17 by Paul, would, would not shy away from that. In fact, they built bridges to try to make the connections with people who disagreed. Specifically in Athens, <clears throat> Paul's there. He's actually waiting around, but the Holy Spirit leads him to look around the cities He notices in all the spiritual things happening, there's an altar to the unknown God. He uses that as his beachhead, but because he's a trained Stoic philosopher, he begins to talk to them publicly about God, our God, and he uses Stoic philosophy to to attract them. And then when they go to another place called the Areopagus, he starts his speech this way, people of God, I can see that you're very religious. In other words, he doesn't destroy their spiritual hunger. He says, that's a good thing. I'm spiritual also. And let me tell you about God, this unknown God. And the first four lines of the Athens Hill speech are straight out of Stoicism. It would have been a complete connect because in those parts of Stoicism, Christianity combined. And then he quotes their holy books. He's not even afraid to say, these are in common. So the connections and the overlap is real. And in theological sense, God-given. But let me say this by way of the third point. To have great crossover between the faiths and the worldviews is wonderful. But that is different than total mashup. Total mashup would mean 
that all these traditions, thousands and thousands of years old, are all saying the same thing. They're all leading the same place. More than just common ground, they're just different ways to God. And if I had today a practicing Jew, a practicing Muslim, a practicing Buddhist, a practicing Taoist, whoever you want to mention, they would have as hard a time with that as Christians do. They would struggle with that equally as we do. And so we've got to dive into this question deeper. Exactly what is this question about? I want to suggest this to begin with. Let's talk about what is the uniqueness of Christianity anyway. I'm actually going to put aside, which is the major thing, which is the historical death, life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to put those aside for a moment because the scholars have looked at all the faiths that way and philosophies. And there's only one thing that really is specific to Christianity that's different than the other faiths or other philosophies. And that is we have the sense of a personal God. A a, a God who is not just a life force or being mindful, right, or centered. It is a personal relationship like a mother would be to a daughter or a father would be to a son. And I want to talk about why that is so important in terms of what Christianity brings to our lives. There's four things, believe it or not, that are the positive sides of a very negative thing called Judgment Day. And I want to talk about those four things. The first thing that a personal God does is this. God personally, because he cares about all of God's children, is he doesn't have, he doesn't go silent against the injustice and the wickedness and all of the things around the world that where people, institutions, or countries hurt or kill other people, where they, they lessen their potential, where, where, where events happen that just alter their entire lives permanently. I don't know if you've had that happen or friends around you, but a person's decision, an institution's decision, a set of choices have basically thrown their life off completely. It will never be the same, and in this life, it will never be better. It will be worse or constrained or even reduced completely. In those situations, unfortunately, Taylor Swift does not help us because you can't just shake it off. (laughs) Right? Let me tell you where this came home to me as a father. Actually, John didn't know this before I preached today, but when I was an associate pastor here, uh, my sons were 10 and 8, and, uh, and we had a big dog, or a yellow lab named Bailey. Love big dogs. But Bailey sometimes would escape from our house. And Bailey loved to go down and talk to neighbors nearby. And he'd go bark at them and be in their, in their lawns. And my problem is one night when Bailey got out, he went to a neighbor who really does not like people disturbing his lawn. <laughs> so my, son, my sons... 10 and 8, ran out to try to get Bailey. I was just getting my clothes on. As I'm exiting the door to go find Bailey, uh, my sons have found him down the street at this place. This man is yelling and swearing at my sons at the top of his lung, threatening them. So we get Bailey in the house and the boys in the house, and I am really angry. 
I get out of the house, and I walk down to this lawn, I walk up to this guy, and the last thing I remember him saying is, don't come any closer. It was at that point that it dawned on me that my resume as an associate pastor (laughs) would not be benefited for being arrested for assault and battery. Dawned on me. You understand justice? You understand when life alters? We have a personal God. And when his children are treated this way, it isn't just shoved under the rug. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit has a lot of ministries to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captive free, you know, to, to encourage, to heal, to reconcile all the great things in this life that help us cope with that. But it doesn't get swept under the rug. You see, if it's swept under the rug, God has no word for the abused, for the cheated, for the terrorized, for the marginalized, right? For the maimed, for the destroyed. And I'm here to tell you there is a word in eternity. Judgment will review it all, and finally, God will say no. He will say no to all of it. There is a word for all of those things that in eternity it will be reviewed and it will be judged. Fortunately, the flip side is a lot more fun. And that is that when we do good things, when we do helpful, holy things, when when we're about loving the world, the book of Acts says it's like a fragrant offering before God. You see, all of that's recorded also. And that is so important because life is not just a series of events and then you die. When you get up in the morning, it matters. You matter. Life matters. Every decision matters. The more that uh, astronomers study the universe, the more impersonal it seems. It's interesting this week, The largest thing they've ever been able to measure or see just happened. It's called the supervoid. And the supervoid is 1.3 billion light light years across. They found this whole thing. They can't figure out why it's so empty. But I just want to tell you, I'm really glad that the largest thing we see in the universe, the void, is swallowed up by the biggest thing there is, which is a personal God. A personal God that means every day you get up, it matters. What you do matters, and life matters. What a gift that is to us. And if that wasn't enough, this personal God decided to include us in the redemption of the world. What the authors have been trying to say to people everywhere is you've been created uniquely. You've been given talents and gifts and passions and personality types. And that is not just for you. It's so you can do things in the world, as Ephesians says, good works that God designed for you to do from the foundation of the world. Didn't have to be that way. God didn't have to make us as part of the deal, but God did. And if that wasn't big enough, he gave us a guidance counselor called the Holy Spirit to help us figure it out through the maze you just showed us. Right? And more than that, he's going to reward it when we get to heaven. There's going to be treasures in heaven and rewards because you matter. 
You get to be engaged with this whole thing. Because that's the kind of God we have. A personal God includes his children in the process of redemption. And if that wasn't big enough, this personal God actually has a home. It's a mansion. And when we go to heaven, there's a room for you in that mansion. He's actually going to come himself, Jesus, so the scripture says. And what's your room look like in heaven? It's your room. Not anybody else's room. It's been designed for you. And, you know, Jesus never lied, but in John 14, he said this, I would not have told you this if it was not true. He's saying, I understand how big a deal it is that there's a place, that there's something after this, that this is not the big event, that we're actually going to be somewhere else. And so consequently, I just want to reinforce that. That God is actually personally going to take you to be there. And and you're going to have a room, and we're going to live together forever. And wow, (laughs) what God has given to us. You know, it's interesting, with all these great things that a personal God means, Ken Blanchard was talking to Peter Drucker about why he was a Christian. I'll paraphrase it, but Drucker basically said, with everything that God has given to us by just receiving his grace... It's the greatest deal I've ever seen. And by the way, if you ever see a deal that's better, take it. It's fantastic. But let's go back to the question. The question still stands. And and, and what I want to say is this. Is that at the center of Christianity is this. It's in 1 Peter. Once you were no people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. That's at the center of everything, which is the receiving of mercy. And and what I want to say about that is that I don't believe that Judgment Day is a true-false exam. Not, oh, that's who Jesus was, etc. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's this heart move, heart move of receiving grace, of receiving mercy. In other words, there's lots of people in the world that have never heard of Jesus, never will. They, they've, been, they've been steeped in other traditions. They've been other philosophies. I don't think that's held against them in the Judgment Day. Because I think what judgment's going to be about is about the heart. It's about receiving mercy. And my hunch is, and there's some biblical evidence for this, that a lot of people in the world have received mercy that we don't know about. They've actually admitted that they needed God. And they've actually reached out for grace. They've reached out to say, Lord, I I want to love you. I want to receive your grace. I happen to believe that they will be in heaven with us. But I'll tell you one thing, I don't know. (laughs) And by the way, nobody knows. It's not our job to judge. Here's what I want to say overall. I believe that we're in a culture situation where there's a large river in the culture and there's two banks that we have to avoid. And the first bank is the bank of judgment. By the way, we're spelling this in the Canadian way this morning. 
And this is not God. God does not want us to judge. And unfortunately, my generation has been very bad at this. Very bad at this. That's not God. But the younger generations, in my opinion, have an opposite problem. And that's the problem of over-tolerance. Where the world just becomes a large mashup. There really isn't a gospel. There really isn't anything unique that we're saying. They're all just part of one big reality. And that's also not God. Because there's no gospel there. There's no word there. There's no proclamation there. It's just a big mess of ideas from which we stay confused. What's interesting is that both poles are twins of each other. Why? Because in judgment, when you judge somebody, you can just write them off. You don't have to get involved with them at all. Ah, forget them, right? But with over-tolerance, you don't have to get involved either. You just engage them, but you never really talk about what you believe or what might be unique or why Jesus. Once again, you're not involved in that poll either. They're just twins of each other, just different ways of not engaging in the world. But let me suggest an alternative. And the alternative is this. The world would like to put in the middle of those two poles tolerance. But let me ask you something. Have you ever been tolerated? (laughs) How tolerance goes, yeah, he's a nice guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know, he's completely wrong about C, D, and F, but whatever, right? You ever been loved? Love requires engagement. Love requires sacrifice. Love is full of grace and truth. Love means I've got to engage myself in this world. And that, in my opinion, is where we need to be. Not judgmental, but not overly tolerant either. We need to be a people who live the great commandments. Especially to love your neighbor as yourself. So we can talk about the incredible news that comes in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Maybe the biggest reason why I trust the gospel is this. Is that Jesus died for it. God came from perfection because he loved us so much that he might take the price on himself that you and I might benefit in these unbelievable ways and as we move towards the table that represents that I want to just ask you a couple of things some of you have never started this relationship you've never actually received mercy from God you never said Lord I I know I can't even live up to my own standards, let alone the glory of God, let alone my potential. I know I'm broken. But I, I am so glad that you did something about that. And I just want to receive your grace this morning. I just want to open my heart to you, to your mercy, to all that you would give to me. If, if you haven't done that, do that with me today when I pray. I'll pray for you and just say, God, 
I want to know you that way. I want to know a personal God who loved me, who's accepted me, and who's forgiven everything I've ever done or ever do. And some of you today, you need to restart this relationship. You forgot how much there is in Jesus. You kind of have become a distant relative. And this is a great time to say, Lord, I want to reboot this thing. I really want to start with you today again in a way that we really are personally involved with each other's lives. While I'm praying, why don't you just express to yourself something like that? Let's take time and pray together now. Lord, I'm just overwhelmed by the goodness of you. I am so grateful that you've come and that you've engaged us as a mother would to a child, as a father would to a son. And by the Spirit, you live right inside of us because of your mercy. Lord, I pray for those that may just be starting out that relationship today. Lord, I pray as they ask you that you, the Holy Spirit, would would come inside of them, that you be real to them through your love and your acceptance, through, through your grace today. Lord, that, that that would begin now and in the receiving of the elements this morning. Father, there's other of, others of us that have gotten out of touch with what a wonderful thing it is to know you personally. God, I pray you'd help them restart their faith today, that you take their desire and their commitment and bring your grace anew. Let it be fresh this morning as you promise in the scriptures. Lord Jesus, we also thank you for what you did on the cross. It's immeasurable value to us. Through Christ we pray.